This is Christian Knudsen and Sean Bull with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. After years of conservative control, the Wisconsin Supreme Court is now shifting to a liberal majority. Justice Janet Protasiewicz was sworn in to a 10-year term during a ceremony this afternoon at the state capitol, cementing a 4-3 majority for liberals on the state's highest court. Protasiewicz, with a former Milwaukee County judge, replaces retired conservative former Chief Justice Patience Rogensack. Protasiewicz won the seat in April, handily defeating Daniel Kelly, a conservative former justice, on the court. Elections for the state Supreme Court are officially nonpartisan, but Protasiewicz wasn't shy about taking positions on political issues, including protecting abortion rights. The campaign was also marked by record-breaking outside spending. The court is expected to consider cases on several high-profile issues, including abortion, redistricting, and election laws, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports. We'll have more about these potential lawsuits later on in the show. U.S. Representative Tom Tiffany, a Republican from Woodruff, will not run for U.S. Senate next year against Democratic incumbent Tammy Baldwin. Tiffany told the Associated Press in an interview today that he plans to seek re-election in northern Wisconsin's 7th Congressional District, which he's represented since 2020. Tiffany's announcement comes just a couple of months after fellow Wisconsin Republican U.S. Representative Mike Gallagher also declined to challenge Baldwin, and it leaves the Republican primary field wide open. Madison businessman Eric Hovde, Franklin businessman Scott Mayer, and controversial former Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark are among those reportedly considering a run as Republicans. Baldwin is seeking a third term in the Senate. State officials are launching an effort to attract and retain special education teachers. The Wisconsin Department of Public Instruction will begin the special education induction program this fall, offering coaching and mentoring sessions to 300 first or second year special education teachers, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. Special education teachers are more than twice as likely to leave the profession as general education teachers, and about half leave after just a few years in the classroom, according to DPI. The retention program will be funded for three years using a federal special education grant. Dane County residents have an opportunity to safely dispose of household chemicals later this month. The county and the village of Wanakee are hosting a collection event for household hazardous waste on Saturday, August 12th at Rip Park from 8 a.m. to noon. This event is part of a water quality awareness program aiming to keep hazardous substances out of storm drains and waterways. It's all open to Dane County residents at a cost of $15 per vehicle. Registration and information can be found on the Dane County and Wanakee Municipal websites. Two downtown Madison establishments, the Essen House and Come Back Inn, could be staring down the wrecking ball once again. The Wisconsin State Journal reports an Eau Claire-based developer has proposed raising the buildings that the businesses have long called home and replacing them with apartments and a hotel. The plan from JCAP Real Estate would put roughly 150 residential units and a six-story hotel building on the property along East Wilson and South Blair Streets. An adjacent historic building housing the Hotel Ruby Marie and Up North Bar would be remodeled. At least three past redevelopment plans for the block have fizzled in the last two decades, including one in 2019 that faced skepticism from neighbors and city officials. And now, on to today's top stories. 
Madison is the largest city in the Midwest to not use police body cameras, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. While officers are equipped with dashboard cameras in their cars, several city committees have looked at implementing body cams for years. Tonight, city leaders may inch closer to implementing this technology. WORT producer Nate Weggehout has the story. The Common Council will decide tonight whether to begin a pilot program for body-worn cameras for police officers. That vote could be the final step in a years-long debate into whether or not body-worn cameras would make policing in Madison more equitable. If approved, select police officers working in the city's north side would wear the cameras for a three-month period. Several city committees have looked into the issue for about a decade, and while it said that cameras alone wouldn't be a cure-all for policing issues, a feasibility committee two years ago recommended a pilot program for the cameras. The Common Council voted in April to authorize Police Chief Sean Barnes to create a policy for the body-worn cameras. After review from the city's attorney's office, the cameras are ready to be deployed in a pilot program if alders tonight decide to sign off. Madison Police Chief Sean Barnes has been one of the biggest proponents of the pilot program, and advocates point to the increased transparency and law enforcement cameras might bring. Greg Markle is the executive director of the Madison-based advocacy group Operation Fresh Start and member of a committee created by the city to study body-worn cameras in 2020. Back in 2020, Markle said that the cameras might make people more comfortable going to police. The thing which our young people presented was that their comfort level and their willingness to interact with police and call police if they're in need of help. They feel that their willingness to call police if they need help would go up if police wore body cameras because they'd feel safer and more confident in making that call. But the cameras have their fair share of opponents who say that body-worn cameras would bring more harm to already marginalized communities. The latest body-worn camera study committee, which released their final report in 2021, outlined the pros and cons of body-worn cameras. The biggest con, the report states, is that body cameras on police could be used as another tool to over-police communities of color. The Dane County Jail has some of the worst racial disparities in the nation and arrests and incarcerates black people at more than double the national average. Greg Gellenbuick sat on that study committee but resigned before the release of the final report. He told a public affair last year that body cameras still just show another side of the story, one that can still be manipulated just like any other perspective. Police, occasionally you'll have an incident where a body cam may, may help you know, show that you know, a cop was lying or something like that, but in the vast majority of cases, that won't be the outcome. It's actually a tool to entrench the status quo and to get cops exonerated, you know, because of the perceptual distortions that the camera generates and the illusions the camera generates. Researchers have backed up that claim that body-worn cameras might not be a neutral objective observer of situations, but instead can lead to varying interpretations depending on perspective and camera angle. Cameras can also be costly, and detractors have pointed to the technology as another expensive item that could come up in future MPD budgets. 
A 2021 survey from the State Department of Justice found that two-thirds of state police agencies already use body-worn cameras. Of the third that did not, cost was the major obstacle, both for the technology and the cost of handling and preserving footage. Last night, the city's Police Civilian Oversight Board voted to recommend the passage of the pilot program on a 5-2 vote. The council will take up the matter at their meeting tonight, which begins at 6.30. The results of the pilot program would be outlined in a report written by the Madison Police Department and handed off to the Common Council for evaluation by a third party. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. Wisconsin has been using the same wolf management plan for 24 years, but last November, the State Department of Natural Resources proposed an updated approach to managing the state's population of wolves. That plan received significant public input, and today, officials released a new plan based on that input. WORT producer He Wan Lim has more. Wildlife officials released a new draft of the state's next wolf management plan earlier today. The plan, released by the Department of Natural Resources, has been in the works for nearly two years. This most recent revision was made after the DNR received 3,500 comments during a 110-day public review period. DNR Secretary Adam Payne states that, Within that feedback, uh, we heard uh, opinions that were on the full spectrum uh, on this issue, with much of the feedback echoing previous input uh, and previous public comments that we've heard earlier in this process. Since that time, we've been reviewing and, and thoughtfully considering all of this feedback and using that to consider revisions and, and ultimately develop uh, this revised draft that we're sharing here today. The plan now recommends maintaining the statewide population at a 1,000 wolves following the majority opinion of survey responses. That's a change from the draft released in November, which recommended no specific target number. Instead, that plan proposed creating local advisory committees that would monitor the wolf population in different areas of the state. Those committees would then decide on a target wolf population for their area. The recommendations in the plan released today set certain thresholds for the wolf population in Wisconsin, but those thresholds are flexible given the state's estimated population. Under current estimates, a population under 800 would have officials looking to grow the population. A population between that and 999 would be considered stable. A population between 1,000 and 1,199 would be stable, with officials looking to reduce the population. A population of anything above that would have officials looking to reduce the population. These criteria could help set a plan for when officials set a wolf hunt, which became a high-profile issue in spring of 2021 when a court-ordered and hastily planned spring hunt resulted in 218 wolves killed in just four days. The quota for that hunt was only 119 wolves. DNR large carnivore specialist Randy Johnson says recommendations in the new draft plan would be used to help set the quotas in the future. There's so many scenarios you could play out. For example, we may not have a harvest season for a number of years, and who knows where the population will be at that time. If it's potentially greater than 1,200, it, it would help set that initial starting point, if you will, for those conversations. The status of wolves has varied in Wisconsin and nationally, which has directly affected the state's ability and options to manage the wolves. An endangered status would allow only non-lethal methods of control whereas a threatened status would allow both lethal and non-lethal options of control. No status would permit both methods of control, 
and would allow a public wolf hunting and trapping season in Wisconsin. Former President Donald Trump revoked the endangered status of gray wolves in 2020, which allowed states and tribes to decide how to manage wolves. Wisconsin's last wolf hunt was held in February of 2021. A federal judge restored endangered species protection for the gray wolves nationwide in February of last year, which outlawed hunts. Johnson acknowledges that. Wolves are still listed federally as endangered in Wisconsin, so there's no hunt on the horizon, but the state law remains in place that upon delisting, the department's required to implement a season. And so this plan is written to be flexible, to be applicable to a delisted population as well as a listed population. Some farmers and ranchers maintain that wolf hunts are necessary to protect their livestock, especially since the population of wolves has risen in recent decades. But animal rights activists argue that the wolf population isn't stable enough to sustain hunting. Wolf education and conservation advocate Rachel Tilseth says, Any type of hunt is going to disrupt them, and so we should try not to do that if at all possible. So I think this plan is looking at, you know, the wolf population number as far as the land can handle. The revised version of the plan is set to be reviewed by the Natural Resources Board and voted on by the DNR's Policy Board in October. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Hiwan Lim. Inside a packed Capitol Rotunda in downtown Madison earlier today, Janet Protasewicz was officially sworn in as a justice on the Wisconsin Supreme Court, giving it a liberal majority for the first time in over a decade. Democrats have vowed to bring numerous lawsuits to the state's high court if she was elected, and with her swearing in today, some of those cases are already making their way through lower courts. WORT producer Nate Wegehout spoke with Emily Fannin, State House reporter with CBS 58 in Milwaukee, about the lawsuits that have already been filed and others that are expected to come. We all want a Wisconsin where our freedoms are protected. We want a Wisconsin with a fair and impartial Supreme Court. We all want to live in communities that are safe. And we all want a Wisconsin where everyone is afforded equal justice under the law. That's why I don't take this responsibility lightly. Just as I have throughout my entire legal and judicial career, I am committed to protecting our freedoms and I'm committed to fairness and impartiality in our justice system. It's not only what the people of Wisconsin expect, it's what they deserve and what the oath I have taken demands. The Wisconsin Supreme Court's execution of our duties without favor to special interests, political pressure, or our own personal beliefs is vital to giving the people of our state trust and confidence in our judicial system. Earlier this afternoon, Justice-elect Janet Protasewicz was officially sworn into the state Supreme Court, cementing a new liberal majority on the state's highest court for the first time in 15 years. With that new liberal majority, Democrats have now promised to bring several high-profile cases to the state Supreme Court, with some of those cases already in the works. I'm joined now by Emily Fannin, State House reporter with CBS 58 in Milwaukee. Uh, Emily, thank you so much for talking with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now, Emily, I just want to start by just sort of going down the list here, starting with the abortion lawsuit that was filed by Attorney General Josh Call last year. Tell me a little bit about that and what the the current state of that lawsuit is. 
Right. So right now it's in the lower courts. And with Janet Protasiewicz now being sworn onto the state's high courts, what this really means is that Democrats are now hopeful that when that is wrapped up in the lower courts, that will eventually make its way up to the state Supreme Court. And that is, you know, kind of almost the inevitable that is going to happen here. So this is why we're hearing a lot from Democrats and liberals really hoping that now with Protosewitz on the bench, this could possibly mean an end of the state's near total abortion ban. Now, what I'm hearing from some people that have been making calls about how long the lower courts can take, they're kind of estimating by late fall, they could wrap up that case and then it could head state, uh, straight to the state Supreme Court. So it's likely we might be getting a decision um, on the state's abortion ban by the end of this year. Now, just to remind, you know, your listeners that the court system takes a while. So a lot of times some of these cases are stretched out. The justices might hear uh, deliberations over several months. It really just depends. But that is kind of looking ahead into the future of the timeline. Now, another lawsuit that was filed just last month is looking to overturn some of the recent rulings from the state Supreme Court regarding absentee voting. What, what can you sort of tell me about that lawsuit? Right. And we already saw um, liberals file a case challenging uh, against that. It was about two years ago um, that we saw Republicans and conservatives bring forth an argument that they wanted to ban ballot drop boxes. There was a lot of back and forth rulings right before the election. But in the end and today, you'll still see drop boxes across the city of Madison and they are locked up and they're not being allowed to use. Democrats um, are typically the ones that like to vote absentee ahead of time, and it's a practice that Republicans have been widely critical of, mainly stemming from uh, a lot of misleading claims from former President Donald Trump about ballot droppings in the middle of night. They're counting into wee hours when all of that is just really misleading and false statements about it. Um, So going forward, that's what's happening now is that we're seeing Democrats basically take advantage of this new liberal majority. Now, that is also still in the lower courts, so it has not made its way up to the state Supreme Court yet, but it's almost that they are preparing to bring that again to make drop boxes widely available to voters uh, across the state again. And so those are the two really big lawsuits that have already been filed. But there have been other talks by Democrats and Democratic aligned groups uh, to bring other issues before the court as well. Specifically, I know redistricting has been brought up a lot uh, alongside Act 10. What, What can you sort of tell me about those? Right. I mean, that's once again, I think just liberals looking to take advantage um, of their new uh, 4-3 majority. There are have been some whispers about union rights and redistricting. I would say that redistricting is probably going to come before all those other issues, only because that has, you know, had some precedent here recently. They can go back um, on the maps that were enacted last year, bring up forth those arguments again, and learn from what they heard in the state Supreme Court when it was controlled by conservatives. So I would predict that one to come before we see, you know, maybe union rights challenges, you know, like Act 10. And we've also heard of other election laws, maybe the state's voter ID laws. But based on conservatives that I've talked to, specifically president of the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, Rick Essenberg, he believes those are just going to take a lot more time. And, you know, in theory, too, it's going to be interesting to see the pace of the court and whether or not they take up all these issues very quickly or they span them out several times. Like I mentioned before, it's not like there's going to be this, you know, going into full high gear speed that all these lawsuits are going to be flying, which I think some Democrats actually predict will be happening. But based on my conversations with both sides of the aisle, they just don't think it's going to happen that quickly. And because we also have our eyes are now almost 
focusing attention, at least conservatives, to 2025, which is when the next state Supreme Court elections will happen. And speaking of both sides, now yesterday you did write a story along the lines of this subject here, and you spoke with the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, or WILL, uh, which is a conservative legal group here in Wisconsin. What, what did they have to say about this now liberal majority on the court? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're preparing as much as possible. I think, you know, even how we started this conversation, people can expect abortion, redistricting, absentee ballot drop boxes to come before the court. On other issues, it really just depends. So they're trying to prepare as much as possible, but no one can really tell when exactly this case is going to get to the state Supreme Court. Like I mentioned, likely abortion by the end of this year. So they're preparing on that front. But they also are just paying attention to how much uh, liberals want to take advantage of this and how many issues they'll weigh in. Because Rick Essenberg did kind of warn, if they start going very quickly, you know, taking up Act 10, abortion, redistricting, I mean, basically all GOP victories that they have touted for many, many years, voter ID laws, um, conservatives are warning that that could backfire on them. And what I mean by that is looking ahead to 2025. And that is when the next state Supreme Court election it, it will be held, when liberal justice Ann Walsh Bradley term is up. So while many of us just want to take a breather, look ahead to 2024, conservatives are really just eyeing the pace of the court here and to see if they're really going to have a good narrative come 2025, regardless of who that might be for running for that open seat. And Emily, do you have just any final thoughts on this matter that you think are important to share? I guess just stay tuned as uh, many of us are looking ahead to just see um, what cases and how soon uh, the court will start weighing in on very hot button issues. I've been talking with Emily Fannin, State House reporter with CBS 58 in Milwaukee, about the potential lawsuits that could be making their way to the state Supreme Court with their new liberal majority. Now, you can read Emily's story on the matter alongside all of her other reporting online over at CBS58.com. Emily, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thanks for having me. The time is now 6.32 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Sean Bull, here with my co-host, Christian Knudsen. Thanks for joining us. If you're thinking that conspiracy theories, exaggerations, and outright lies are getting more and more common, you're right. There's even a term for it. Information disorder. With a grant from the National Science Foundation, the University of Wisconsin is working to help dispel information disorder in concert with Wisconsin Watch. On yesterday's 8 o'clock buzz, host Brian Standing spoke with Phoebe Petrovic, reporter with Wisconsin Watch and one of the leads on the new project. What do we mean by information disorder and what are the components of that? Yeah, so this really comes from um, a researcher named Claire Wardle. She used to, uh, she co-founded First Draft, which is now the Information Futures Lab at Brown University, um, and she developed information disorder as a more nuanced term around the time when we were using fake news for everything that didn't have the full patina of truth. And so she got really frustrated with that because there were, you know, variations and nuances within that. And so there were three major strains of information disorder, ac- according to Claire Wardle, misinformation 
disinformation and malinformation. So misinformation is false or misleading content that is spread by those who don't know that it's false or misleading. So really the difference between mis and disinformation hinges on intent. So sometimes, you know, if misinformation gets uh, shared enough times without people realizing, excuse me, if people share disinformation enough times without realizing it's false, it turns into this sort of misinformation where it's being shared, it's false and misleading, but we don't know that that is true. Disinformation is deliberately false information that is designed to deceive deceive or cause harm. And people will share this because they want to make money, because they want to gain political power, or because they have a desire to cause chaos. And then malinformation, which we hear about a lot less frequently, but we might come in contact with still is false content that is spread or excuse me that is malinformation is factual content that is spread with the intent to cause harm so it's private information that has been hacked or leaked um, like when someone posts revenge porn so that's true information genuine information that is cause, spread to cause harm talk a little bit about sort of the gray area and sort of how you determine intent in determining what kinds of information this is and where that boundary between something like malinformation, for example, which is factually true, but your motivations might be questioned, might cross over into actual journalism. So, I mean, you work for an entity that is an investigative journalism. Some of the things that you publish are going to be deeply upsetting to some of the people who are, you know, identified in that. And what's that line? How do you draw that line between uh, malinformation and solid investigative reporting? These are great philosophical questions. I will say that we as investigative journalists never intend to cause harm. Like I, we, we kind of internally have a motto similar to the Hippocratic Oath, which is do no harm. So, and, and that's different from like questioning power and calling into question power um, and holding those who have power to account. So I would say that malinformation, you know, fall or factual content that is spread with the intent to cause harm um, really comes down to who is holding the power in this way. Um, And so, you know, publishing a story, for example, on a police department that um, has been, you know, dealing with sexual harassment allegations internally, which we did in Sheboygan, that's not malinformation because the intent is not to cause harm, but rather to expose wrongdoing and, and potentially rectify harm that's already been done. Okay, so tell us a little bit about uh, this project. It's funded by the National Science Foundation. You're working with the University of Wisconsin. There's a a tool out there from the University Journalism School called Course Correct. What role does Wisconsin Watch play in this particular project? So editorially, we are completely distinct from them. What we're doing is eventually piloting the tool. And so the tool has a different name now. I can't quite remember it, but um, they're changing it from Course Correct. Um, And the tool is still being developed. And so eventually, once it's ready for us as the guinea pigs to use, we will be using the tool internally, learning how it works and, and sharing that with our newsrooms and seeing, is this actually effective? And so the idea of the tool is that it helps to inoculate users from mis or disinformation. So if there's something out there, if they're sharing information that is um, if they're sharing misinformation, um, but they haven't created it, they probably don't know that it's not true. And so the researchers are trying to figure out, like, what is the best, most effective way to correct that, to, to help people realize what's true or what's not true? Um, because sometimes if you just go up to someone and say, hey, 
that's not true. Um, they're going to be very defensive and they're going to maybe, you know, double down in their convictions. Um, and so they're doing the work to figure out what is the most effective way of correcting that. And uh, what we're doing is separately, you know, with total editorial independence from the project, from the university, I'm just covering <laughs> information disorder in Wisconsin now and, you know, working on sort of finding things that have taken hold um, or are going to take hold um, that aren't true and helping to sort of clarify what is and, and provide people with correct information on how they can find out for themselves. And then eventually once the tool is ready for us to use, we'll be trying to use it ourselves, you know, to make sure that it's ready for prime time. So we're kind of in that sense, we're the guinea pigs to figure out, is this actually effective for the wider public to use? What are some of the examples of disinformation or misinformation or malinformation that you've seen uh, here in this state? Well, I'm working on a story right now about what gender-affirming care for trans youth actually looks like in Wisconsin. So that story is coming out eventually, but that's a, a huge one that has sort of taken hold of the political conversation right now. Things like describing gender-affirming surgeries or procedures as mutilation, gender-affirming procedures or treatments as causing irreversible harm or damage, you know, things like that um, have been proliferating. Um, I've also heard, you know, so I don't, I don't want to repeat some of the, the, the mistruths because the more you amplify or repeat them, sometimes the more they can stick. But that is a realm in which there's been a ton of misleading information um, or just straight up not true information. And then we're also looking at sort of the structures behind all of this or like sort of trying to anticipate what could come. So thankfully, we're not in an election cycle right now, but we're we're facing one in 2024. And so we know that there will be a lot of misleading or outright false information about our elections, about how secure they are, about how they are run, things like that. And so one of my jobs or one of my roles is to um, provide accurate, fact-checked, thoroughly investigated, free, fair, nonpartisan investigative reporting or explanatory reporting about those important systems before the event actually happens so that people have been reading, you know, about how our elections are run prior to the election so that we're, when we're all in the heat of the moment and something might come out that claims, you know, X, you might be able to be like, well, I read a story, you know, that explained that it's actually Y. Um, and that is a sort of inoculation that should hopefully, maybe, make you less susceptible to believing, you know, the false information that is X. As you're researching these stories and uh, working on this project, what kinds of things are the, are there drafts of this tool that are suggesting that there are particular ways of communicating that kind of information to people? You talked about, for example, getting that information out ahead of time uh, before, mm -hmm. you know, there's a flood of misinformation or disinformation uh, that's out there. What other techniques do you use to try and, as you say, inoculate readers or listeners or viewers from that kind of misinformation? There's a lot of research on this. And so one of the things that I did when I first took this beat was just did a lot of reading on why are we susceptible psychologically to misinformation and disinformation. And it, those terms are slippery and sticky and you can kind of, you can hear what I'm referring yeah. to them. It's, it's a mouthful, right? And information disorder is not as, as well known. And so I'm kind of slipping between them, but talking about them all broadly. But there's a lot of research on how to do this well. And, and we're still sort of it's, it's evolving like any science or practice. But the big one is 
inoculation or pre-bunking. And that's the term that's, you know, used to describe sort of getting information to people ahead of time so that they kind of are primed for it. Um, some of the other big considerations are changing sort of the way that we do our headlines or do our writing so that we lead with the truth rather than the false claim. Because sometimes you'll see, you know, the clickbaity headline that's got that salacious claim or, or it's often like in the, in the form of a question. And then the, the, the story will be like, no, you know, what we propose to you in the headline is not true. But, you know, many of us will just, if we're scrolling on social media or even, you know, on NPR.org, like we'll look at the headline, we'll look at the photo, and we might not click through. And so if the falsehood that you are hoping to debunk is in the headline, then people are going to come away with a falsehood. <laughs> and so, you know, instead sort of proposing a truth sandwich where you leave with the truth, then you state the fact, you know, the, the falsehood that you're trying to correct, and then you follow it up with the truth again um, is one of the sort of formal ways to get this information across to people because it's, you know, that sort of like myth-fact, myth-fact construction um, research shows is not actually that effective in conveying the information. That was 8 O'Clock Buzz host Brian Standing talking with Wisconsin Watch disinformation reporter Phoebe Petrovic. That was just a portion of their full conversation, which can be found in full online at wortfm.org. Trail Tuesday is back. This week, WORT contributor Reed Kamai takes us to Fesky Park in Cross Plains. It's perfect for getting together with friends for picnics and yet also contains miles of trails to walk as well as overlooks to discover. Welcome to another edition of Trail Tuesday. This week, we stay in Cross Plains and explore the overlooks, rolling hills, and open prairies that are Fesky County Park. Fesky County Park is off Sherbel Road and just north of U.S. Route 14. There's parking right off Sherbel Road, but as I realized only after I parked and got out, you can proceed up the narrow road off to the right of that to parking that's closer to the trails and shadier. Right around that chunk of parking are two shelters, each with picnic tables and plenty of open space around them. It's a wonderful space for getting together with folks and playing lawn games, which in fact was going on when I got there. Fesky Park was established in 1963 when Otto Fesky, a former mayor of Madison, and his wife Evelyn donated nearly 16 acres of land to Dane County. It has since grown to 155 acres. With a large amount of space, there are lots of different paths to take here. I started simply by heading straight along the driveway into the park towards the first of multiple scenic overlooks this park has to offer. It's not too far ahead, and then the overlook is a few steps down into a circular area with a short stone wall surrounding it on the outer end. And with the height from the ground on the other side, I felt like I was atop a castle. The overlook is near US 14, which obviously does not help with sound, though there is actual nature to see past that. I turned around and then turned left to walk the first of the nature trails we'll explore. This is a half-mile loop that will take us to another overlook. Right at the start of that loop is a fire pit with some logs around it that can serve as seats. The trail maps refer to this point as a council ring, a term coined by landscape artist Jens Jensen. The feature is present as well at the Clearing Folk School in the Door County town of Ellison Bay, a school with adult classes in arts, crafts, and natural sciences, and one which Jensen himself founded in 1935. This is a very narrow dirt trail with rocks and lots of ups and downs. Some plants hang in the way as well in what makes for quite the slalom course. This may include poison ivy, though this time it was relatively easy for me to avoid. The slopes will give you a workout, so fortunately as the path curls back towards the east and widens, you'll find a picnic table to sit at to catch your breath. I know I needed that. 
In the same vicinity as the picnic table is a stone fireplace. To reach this loop's overlook, where we bent to the left to head towards the fireplace, there is a right turn that can be taken. That, plus another right quickly thereafter, leads to the overlook. This view, like the others we'll see later, is rather tree-obstructed. It's beautiful, but there's not much in the distance to take in. Exiting the overlook extension, you can turn left or right and proceed north to complete the loop. Facing east, there's another narrow segment, maybe even narrower than the one we started in, that leads back to the shelters. You can see the shelters before making the turn, and I noted to myself that I otherwise would not have considered this segment to be part of the loop. This sector of the park that we're about to finish exploring is being prioritized for restoration by the organization Friends of Fesky County Park. They aim to eliminate several invasive species, some of which through controlled burns. After nudging through the wheat plants, we're back at shelter number one, which is nearest to the overflow lot I parked at. That's where the folks I mentioned earlier were camped out for their afternoon of recreation. I walked over to the empty shelter number two, not far from the first overlook we checked out, for a sip of water and some much needed shade. I had intended to take the trail which, as the maps indicate, branches off right next to that shelter, but I could not find it. So I walked back towards the parking near the first shelter to enter that way. The trail runs downhill before the first fork and becomes slanted a bit later on. Right at the beginning are some beautiful lavender flowers on either side. They're taller than me, which of course doesn't say much because I'm not very tall. Soon you'll reach a picnic table which is near the end of a driveway. There's a map that indicates that if you continue southeast, you'll head towards the overlooks. You'll come across another fire pit in a council ring. At that point, there are two paths that split off from there, each of which leads to an overlook. The overlook on the path to the right is similar to what we've seen from the others. Worth checking out, but it includes views of the road and railroad and is mostly obstructed by trees. The view from the end of the extension to the left, though, is aimed more towards the prairie. When the sun is out, the amount of lighting on the leaves and trunks is beautiful. We've seen plenty of nature so far in this trek, and yet the bulk of the walking is still to come. Back at the end of the driveway, we continue north onto a path that's wider than some of the others we've been on and contains patches of dirt amid tall grass. Plenty of trees are, as expected, alongside the path, but early on, there is also one within the trail, so you'll have to walk around it. At one point when this trail takes a considerable dip, there is also less foliage to the right, opening up a lovely view of the prairie below. After coming back uphill from the dip, there's a chunk of intersections leading to the remaining loops in Fesky County Park. There's one loop nearly a mile long surrounding the prairie we were able to see from the dip, a 0.6 mile loop around another prairie further north, or, surrounding that one, a woodland loop also nearly a mile long. I opted for the smaller prairie loop. There's a short spur to walk through between that complex set of intersections and our intended prairie loop. Once you arrive there, as expected, be prepared for much more sun exposure. The prairie loop is only immediately inside the wooded surroundings, making for lovely sounds of trees rustling during spells of wind as occurred while I was in the loop. It's worth noting that the inside of the prairie was only slightly less mown than the trail, so it may appear as open to access as the trail. The trail maps suggest otherwise, though, so I recommend staying along the perimeter. Coming around the loop, there's a left turn you can take into a shadier route. This turn comes slightly before completing the loop and isn't indicated on the map, or at least not the map I took a picture of to guide me. This takes you into a portion of the aforementioned Woodland Trail, at which point you would turn right to head back towards the complicated intersection from before. There, you'll make the first right turn to go up a short but steep hill like before, and then you make a sharp left just a few steps later. This takes you on another slanted trail alongside the road. Soon, we end up back at the parking lot for shelter number one, at which point the folks from earlier were playing an intense game of kickball. One kicked ball traveled so far that it would have bounced near me had I gotten there sooner. 
They had fun with their game, and I had fun on this lovely and quite tiring walk. Join us in a week's time for the next edition. For now, reporting for WORT News, I'm Reed Kama. Tonight on Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg takes care of an uncommon water bird that you might at first confuse with your common duck, the grebe. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today I want to talk about grebes. And grebes are by far some of my favorite waterfowl, and they are the cutest little I hate to say duck, they're not really a duck. They're the cutest little birds. (laughs) Now we have a lot of grebes here in Wisconsin, but what I wanna talk about today is the pied-billed grebe primarily, but then also kind of compare them to some of our more other common grebes, which would be the eared grebe and the horned grebe, which we see often during a migration, especially here in our state. Now I'm talking about pied-billed grebes today because we have one at the Wildlife Center right now in rehabilitation. And I feel like it's fairly rare to have them actually admitted to the clinic, and that's because people don't really find them very often. If you think about it, grebes are a very small, petite, kind of chunky, but very tiny, stout little water bird, and they are almost always on the water when people see them. So you'd either have to normally be out on a kayak or a boat or something to even be able to find one, uh, let alone catch one, because they're fast and they're slippery little dudes. But in particular, uh, water birds have this unfortunate accident-prone type of behavior, I guess you could call it, where if they see the heat shimmer on a really hot day on top of like a blacktop or asphalt, they can sometimes confuse that for water. And since these birds will take off from a very large landing spot of water, and they have a very high wing loading, and what that means is it takes a lot for them to actually take off. They need like a runway, like an airplane would. They need to be on larger bodies of water. And so if they crash land on asphalt, thinking that it's a large body of water, then unfortunately they are, pardon the pun, uh, sitting ducks for predators or for being hit by cars or just starvation because really they're not able to go anywhere. They can't do anything, um, maybe waddle around a little bit, but they're not quite like loons where loons cannot walk at all, but they really have a hard time doing anything uh, for the most part when they're on a hot surface that's definitely not water. So this is how this little pie-bill grebe came to us in the last week. And we found that it has a couple of fractures in the shoulder girdle, most likely because it crash landed very hard down onto the asphalt. And it was found in the middle of a parking lot with a lot of semi trucks. So you can imagine this poor little bird was sitting in the middle of a giant parking lot with some my trucks driving all around him. Um, and we are, feel so grateful that somebody was willing to pick up this bird um, and bring it to us because otherwise it would not have made it in the wild. And that's what wildlife rehabilitators are here for. So pie-bill grebes, you know, they have this really, I would say chunky bill. It's a very thick, stout bill. Um, it has a little bit of a stripe in it. And then it it kind of leads to the eye and the head, which is mostly all brown, but you have like a little bit of a white eye ring. And they're just, they're very pretty. 
And I say pretty because when they flap their wings, you can kind of see the white on the underside. And they spend a lot of time going up and down very quickly in the water. So you'll see them for a few seconds and then boom, they're down again and then back up again. They're pretty easy to differentiate, I would say, between that the horned and the eared grebes. Now, those two are difficult to tell sometimes when you're trying to look out in the wild through a scope or binoculars, uh, like which species is which. And that's because they look pretty similar. Um, they have these beautiful bright red eyes, which is a, one distinguishing factor you can tell between the pied build and the horned and ear grebes. But they also have this, um, I cannot believe this is what it's called, but plumicorn. So like a unicorn, but a plume. Um, it's a gold feathering plumicorn that is on the side of their faces. So for the eared grebe, it's in the shape of kind of an ear. So it's meant to say, well, okay, it's from the back of the eye to the back of the head, and it's beautiful and gold, contrasts the, the black feathers that are around it. Now, the horned grebe is a little bit different. It goes all the way to the front of the bill, so you'll see this bright gold coloration go past the eye, and then it goes all the way to the back of the head as well, but it's like it's cutting off the entire top half of the head with this golden color. That's kind of the best way I can describe it, besides the fact that their head shapes are slightly different. Um, the horned grebe has a little bit more of a very quick slope and kind of slender look, where the eared grebe has more of a very quick kind of jut up. Um, so I think of ski hills, like the horned grebe is more like your bunny hill and the ear grebe is like your black diamond. It's really sharp. It also has a much thinner bill for the eared grebe than it does for the horned grebe. Horned grebe is a little bit thicker of a bill, but again, that can be really hard to see sometimes, especially from a distance. So the pie bill grebe is a lot easier to see. They have those big bills and those are meant for crunching on crustaceans because that's what they're mostly eating, mostly crayfish. Uh, sometimes they'll eat small fish and then a lot of times It'll be other insects that are around in the water beetles and dragonflies and stuff. So this bird that we have in care has its own beautiful specialty diving duck tub that was made by some of our volunteers. And I actually got to work on it and do some um, upgrades to it, I would say, this this season because we hadn't used it yet this year. So I had made a new shelf platform and a feeding tray and everything. And we run water constantly through the tub so that it's always got fresh water. And there's an overflow that allows the top layer of any gunky water to continue to come off of the surface so that their feathers stay nice and clean. And he gets fed uh, once a day. It's really great. I got a video of this bird uh, diving for the first time. It got to have its new enclosure. And it's just going to take a lot of time and rest and recovery for the this bird to heal from those fractures. So we're very hopeful that because of the placement of the fractures and how well aligned they were, that with some rest, this bird should be able to heal okay and hopefully still be able to fly away uh, for the upcoming migration. So little water birds, ones you don't see too often, but I hope you get the chance to see them someday. Uh, grebes are some of my favorite water birds and it has been fun to have one in care here at Dane County Humane Society's Wildlife Center. So if you ever do find any animals that are sick, injured, or orphaned, or you think they need help, uh, please give us a call at 608-287-3235. Thanks for listening here on WORT. This has been Wildlife Weekly. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Your headline writer this evening was John K. Wilson. Your reporter was Hewan Lim. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, Reed Kamai, and Brian Standing with the 8 o'clock buzz. Dave Lawrenson engineered the show. 
Nate Wegehow produced this newscast. And Shally Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Uh, stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And I'm your host, Sean Bull. Up next is the Spanish language news with En Nuestro Patio.